I am delighted to be here today to join you all for this important symposium. And um, on a personal note, uh, I graduated from UVA's law school in 1983, which was 13 years after the pioneering attorney, Elaine Jones, who you'll hear from later today. Um, a third of our class was women, but I went through three years without having any female faculty in a class, except for one adjunct for women in the law. Um, so it is so gratifying to see my alma mater in 2021 with so many female faculty led by a woman dean. And I celebrate this as a symbol of the fact that we are making tangible progress um, in terms of gender equality. But history moves one step forward and two steps back, as we've recently seen. And before I introduce our panelists, uh, I'd like to make a couple of framing comments for our conversation today. So first, our work this morning is to unpack the significance of intersectionality in thinking about gender and racial equality. And this theory so aptly named by the brilliant scholar, Professor Kim Crenshaw, who was recently honored by the AALS Women in Legal Education section with a Lifetime Achievement Award for her work, represents the powerful insight that multiple identities converge in ways that amplify the subordination women experience. And that if we are to achieve racial and gender equity as a society, we need to consider how multiple marginalizations and socio-historic conditions on the ground inform our anti-subordination theory and practice. And second, because this panel is titled Lessons from the Past, uh, I'd also like to offer some historical context to frame our discussion. In doing research uh, for my book on the 19th Amendment, Constitutional Orphan, I was struck by the fact that white suffrages tactically and intentionally separated race and gender. So when black suffragists like Mary Church Terrell asked for support in calling for a congressional investigation, when black women were turned away at the polls after ratification of the women's suffrage amendment, white suffragists like Alice Paul made a tactical move to avoid the question by saying that Terrell's organization was concerned with race and Paul's was concerned with sex. And so Paul thus used that to refuse to join with black suffragists to give teeth to the 19th amendment. Now in part that was racism, but it was also because Paul continued to need white Southern congressional votes for her new amendment, the Equal Rights Amendment, which we're gonna be talking about today. And this missed constitutional moment was not only a moral failure, but it was a strategic one. Black suffragists predicted that it would lead to the promise of the 19th remaining unfulfilled, and they were right. And I'd argue that this decoupling of race and sex helps explain in part how courts embraced a very thin conception of the 19th and how we still don't have an Equal Rights Amendment 100 years later. So today's panelists are going to focus on the opposite of that tactical separation. They'll discuss the movement to acknowledge the unique harms that come from <clears throat> discrimination based on multiple identities. And 30 years after Alice Paul separated race and sex to avoid working with black suffragists, Pauli Murray did the opposite. And she brought together race and sex in her theory of Jane Crow. And we see Florence Kennedy using intersectionality in her powerful advocacy as well. 
And our panelists will be addressing that history in their remarks. So let me introduce them. First is uh, Serena Mayeri, who is professor of law and history at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School and the author of Reasoning from Race, Feminism, Law and the Civil Rights Movement. Professor Mayeri will be presenting the successes, limitations and legacies of intersectional feminist advocacy in the 1960s and 70s. Then we will hear from Trust Kapapika, a second year law student who will be presenting Shaping Our Freedom Dreams, Reclaiming Intersectionality Through Black Feminist Legal Theory. Next, we'll have Haley Hahn, who's a third year UVA law student, who'll be presenting Termites in the Master's House, Abortion Rap and Florence Kennedy's Contributions to Racial and Gender Justice. And finally, we'll have Julie Sook, a professor of sociology and political science at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and a senior research scholar at Yale Law School. Professor Sook is the author of We the Women, The Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment, and she'll be presenting A Dangerous Imbalance, Bolly Murray's Equal Rights Amendment, and The Path to Equal Power. I'm sharing moderating duties with Professor Naomi Khan, who's the Justice Anthony Kennedy Distinguished Professor of Law and Nancy Buck Research Professor, in Democracy and Equity and the Director of the Family Law Center here at UVA. And I'd like to thank her for inviting me to co-moderate this panel. And again, each panelist will speak for 10 minutes and then we'll take questions from the audience. So please put your questions in the Q&A box and Naomi and I will read them to the panelists. With that, Professor Mayeri. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be part of this distinguished uh, panel and conference. I'm going to try to share my screen now. Okay. The story of intersectional feminist legal advocacy in the 1960s begins with Polly Murray, uh, who may be the most important feminist legal strategist of the 20th century. And I know uh, Professor Monopoly already mentioned her. Professor Souk will be focusing on uh, Murray, so I'll be brief uh, in this part of my talk. As a member of the Presidential Commission on the Status of Women in 1962, Murray proposed litigating women's rights cases under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment in a strategy that she self-consciously modeled on the NAACP Legal Defense Fund's successful campaign against racial segregation. This 14th Amendment strategy appealed to Murray for two reasons, one of which was explicitly intersectional. Murray hoped that litigating under the 14th Amendment based on an analogy between race and sex discrimination could bridge divides among feminists over the ERA and over racial justice attacking laws that invidiously discriminated against women, extending protective labor laws to men as well as women, and forging, most importantly to Murray, a coalition between civil rights and women's rights movements that had often, as Professor Monopoly just alluded to, been uh, at odds. Two years later, Murray successfully argued for the inclusion of a sex discrimination prohibition in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Sex Amendment had been cast as a provision that would protect Black workers at white women's expense. Murray reframed it as a measure that was crucial to achieve racial justice, because without it, half of all Black workers, 
black women would be left unprotected and black and white women would suffer what she called a common fate of discrimination. Meanwhile, Murray and others at the ACLU, including Dorothy Kenyon and a very young Eleanor Holmes Norton, fought for black women like Lily Willis, a Mississippi voting rights activist prosecuted for perjury when she helped her elderly non-literate mother register to vote in 1965. The laws of three Southern states at that time still barred all women from serving on juries as a matter of law and de facto barred black men from serving on juries as well. Murray helped to win a major victory in 1966 when a federal court ruled those exclusions unconstitutional violations of the Equal Protection Clause. Now, as you may know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg credited Polly Murray with laying the groundwork for this 14th Amendment litigation strategy based on an analogy between race and sex that Ginsburg later brought to the Supreme Court. Murray and other black feminists also pioneered another element of Ginsburg's strategy, a vision of egalitarian marriage. Ginsburg's efforts had roots in the advocacy of black feminists such as Eleanor Holmes Norton, Polly Murray, and Eileen Hernandez, who advanced visions of egalitarian relationships pioneered by black couples that could provide models for white women who aspired to more equal partnerships with men. As we know, Ginsburg used litigation under the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments to challenge the state's ability to enforce a male breadwinner, female homemaker model through laws that penalized more gender egalitarian divisions of family labor. So, so far I've been discussing the ways in which intersectional feminist advocacy critically shaped feminist constitutional strategy. But there was another side to intersectional feminist legal advocacy that I'd like to focus on now, one that is less often recognized and was ultimately less successful. From the late 1960s to the early 1980s, poor and working class African-American women attempted to redefine sexual and economic citizenship to include single mothers who called upon the state for help in caring for and supporting their children. Welfare rights activists we know tried and failed in the late 60s and early 70s to establish a constitutional right to subsistence. <clears throat> but theirs importantly was also a quest for sexual freedom, for reproductive justice and for sex equality. And this fight also played out in constitutional terms. Take Sylvester Smith, the Alabama woman who worked at full time as a cook to support her, her children and grandchild and lost her public assistance benefits because of her intimate relationship with a married father. In 1968, Ms. Smith not only fought successfully for a statutory right not to be subjected to so-called substitute father and suitable home regulations, she also unsuccessfully asserted her constitutional right to engage in non-marital sex, so long as she was, as she put it, young enough to enjoy the company of men. Recipients of public assistance in states such as Texas and Alabama brought lawsuits attacking what Ten Breck called the dual system of family law, alleging that states unconstitutionally discriminated against poor single mothers of color and their children when they funded mostly white recipients of old age and disability insurance much more generously than uh, AFDC beneficiaries. The plaintiffs in a case called Roe versus Norton 
protested the invasion of privacy, sex, and poverty-based discrimination that they suffered when Connecticut, ostensibly seeking to recoup public assistance expenditures, forced them to disclose the identity of their children's fathers or risk fines and imprisonment. Lois Fernandez, a Philadelphia city worker and community activist who litigated and lobbied for the repeal of laws that discriminated against so-called illegitimate children, declared that she had freely chosen to become a single mother and was proud, not ashamed, of her decision to bear children outside of marriage. Katie Mae Andrews and her compatriots with the support of civil rights icons Kenneth Clark and Fannie Lou Hamer argued that single mothers who sought employment as public school teachers in rural Mississippi were heroic role models for their students, while white officials declared them a menace to students' morality and to white parents' morale. Carlene Mack and other unmarried mothers challenged the exclusion of single parents from the Army and Air Force, arguing that their otherwise exemplary qualifications should entitle them to serve their country and receive the considerable social and economic benefits associated with military service. These women advanced very different visions of sexual and economic citizenship and of family political economy from those that prevailed in the constitutional change litigation of the 1970s. Some claimed a right to call on the state for support, even as their sexual and reproductive lives departed from normative family structure. Others defended their prerogative to flourish as single parents without penalty from the state or from employers. They insisted that reproductive freedom was meaningless if it did not include the right to have and raise children and to do so outside of marriage. They also promoted extended family care arrangements, including grandparent care, as a viable and admirable solution to the dilemmas facing working women generally. The single mothers who sought entrance into the armed forces, for example, emphasized that their parents, their children's grandparents, could and would care for their children when their military responsibilities took them away from home. Like the proponents of egalitarian marriage, they suggested that families of color, which with their rich traditions of extended family and kinship care, as well as women's work inside and outside the home, might have something to teach white middle-class Americans. These women achieved some success, to be sure. But the women who tried to redefine responsible citizenship to include single mothers succeeded mostly where they could prove their mettle as independent, self-sufficient workers who balanced breadwinning and caregiving without any help from the state. I don't wanna go on too long, so I'll just mention one other area in which black feminists led the way. Um, one example that I wanted to mention is the development of sexual harassment law, yielding victories that still pay dividends today despite the law's shortcomings. I think it's fair to say that the legacy of this intersectional feminist legal advocacy is now indelibly part of our national consciousness as so much of the unfinished business, as well as the success of sex equality and racial and economic justice follows in the footsteps of what came before. Thanks. Great, thank you, Professor Mayeri. Um, and next we have uh, Trust Kapopika and uh, she'll be describing uh, her paper, Shaping Our Freedom Dreams. Trust. 
Thank you. Um, and also thank you, Professor Mary. That was very informative. So I'm going to be talking about my paper, just more so generally describing the trajectory that I take. So my paper mostly focuses on the agency and importance of Black feminists and how our intellectual offerings contribute to the feminist movement. I begin the paper by first explaining the history of Black feminist legal theory through comparisons to critical race theory, critical legal studies, and feminist legal theory. Understanding Black feminist legal theory helps contextualize modern feminist movements, such as the Me Too movement, the Say Her Name campaign, which built itself off of the Black Lives Matter movement, and the recent Bostock case. Nevertheless, there are certain deviations from the tenet of Black feminist thought in modern feminist movements, which I suspected might be linked to the misapplication of Black feminist theory. In order to address these deviations, my paper underscores the importance of respecting the work of Black feminists in order to build inclusive and effective legal progress. So although my paper predominantly focuses on Black feminist legal theory, which is most recognizable through Kimberly Crenshaw's theory of intersectionality, I begin my paper by highlighting the Black female characters in Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved, which was a book that I read back in undergrad and I absolutely enjoyed because it really highlighted to me something central to the theme of my paper, which is about Black women struggling together collectively. So Black women have long pushed the limits of feminist thought by noting the dissimilar experiences of womanhood when compacted with race, class, sexuality, and so forth. Despite this necessary insight, Black feminists have often struggled to have their work properly respected and engaged. And so that formed a lot of the foundational structure of even like what inspired me to write the paper because I felt like the term and the theory of intersectionality oftentimes was either overused or misused. So within Toni Morrison's Beloved, the women struggled together as Black women who had been mistreated and abandoned by society in order to achieve the triumphant and hopeful ending um, of the novel. My hope is that my paper assists the collective struggle of Black feminists within legal studies and outside of it as we deal with the repeated erasure, the isolation, the misappropriation, and sometimes the trauma. So specifically, I chose to expound upon Crenshaw's theory of intersectionality because intersectionality as a term is widespread but aggressively misused. Many Black feminists have even considered the term devoid of useful meaning as it has been inappropriately used as a catch-all term for things are complicated. And so Crenshaw herself has repeatedly expressed her frustration with the improper use of the term, mostly because it takes a purposefully vague and ineffective position where decisive clarity is required. So the true purpose of the term was to highlight the limitation of judicial decisions, specifically in anti-discrimination cases, because many judges defined racial or gender bias using the generalized experience of Black men and white women, respectively. This often left Black women unprotected by the law because the court would deny them access to legal remedies. 
And oftentimes either they were considered so different from white women that they couldn't be included in the category of gender when it came to anti-discrimination, or they were on the other hand, seen as so similar to black men because of race that their cases should be handled in the same way. But obviously because black men and black women have important differences that sometimes didn't work for them in terms of legal strategy. And so those legal arguments would fail. So although Black women's experiences specifically help develop intersectionality as a theory, the term can generally expose the reliance of the law on shorthand in order to maintain structures of inequity. By defining discrimination according to the experience of the most privileged within a marginalized group, those who are most at need are oftentimes unable to enjoy the full protection of the law. So that gives a little bit of context and oversight into intersectionality as a term. And so within my paper, I try to focus in on modern feminist movements and the ways in which intersectionality has been applied to see how it's impacted either negatively or positively that movement, depending on whether or not the term was properly or improperly applied. So I mentioned earlier specific modern feminist movements like the Me Too campaign and the Black Lives Matter movement, but specifically underneath that, the Say Her Name campaign, which is something that Kimberly Crenshaw herself was a part of the inception of, and then also the Bostock case, because I felt as though each of those reflect an adaptation of Black feminist legal theory by their reliance on intersectionality. However, sometimes, as mentioned earlier, inaccurate reliance would often show up as shortcomings within the logics of those movements. And eventually, as often showed through history, this leads to a type of progress that mirrors the logics behind the oppression that those feminists initially opposed. So a quick example is a lack of diverse voices that are uplifted or have been uplifted by the Me Too movement, despite the fact that the campaign initially was started by a Black woman and was popularized by a white actress on Twitter. And then within my paper, I really delve into not only just generally, but also there was some data done to show that Black women on average didn't engage with the Twitter campaign as much as women from other groups, specifically white women, and how a lot of this can be explained by the different incentives that are presented to certain types of women as opposed to other, and then also obviously the obstacles that might pop up if Black women were to engage, because there are definitely different elements of engaging with the Me Too movement for Black women, such as economic factors or wanting to consider themselves Black first and woman second, which is sometimes impressed upon Black women really young in the Black community. And so they didn't want to seem as though they were being aggressive or, or contrary toward people within their own race. They wanted to show a level of racial solidarity. And so that was just one example, but then I also look at the Bostock case in particular because it uses language that actually reflects the language that uh, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw uses that incorrectly views race in the anti-discrimination sense. So she talks about, Crenshaw talks about the but for look into racial discrimination or any discrimination in which courts sometimes look at an element of your identity and say that 
But for this element of your identity, you would have not been discriminated against. And that is oftentimes an approach that in the Bostock example was helpful because that's actually the approach that was used in the opinion. And obviously that case has been a landmark case for the LGBTQ community. However, it still relies on what Professor Crenshaw sees as flaws in understanding discrimination because it ends up isolating those who would most benefit from the legal system by not allowing for those who experience discrimination in unique ways and usually ways that are more um, pressing or isolating because they are more marginalized from truly enjoying full protection of the law, whereas those who are seen as easily protected due to their closer alliance to those who are at the top of a certain hierarchy. So that means people who experience discrimination in a way that most aligns with the norm, the norm in the United States sense, usually being white, straight, cis heterosexual men. Um, and so there are a couple of examples that I work through in my paper, but generally I think I understand and this was sort of my reflections towards the end about where we should go moving forward, that doing any type of liberatory work is very difficult because it requires a very high level of intentionality and then also follow through. And this is made clear through the reference that I use at the beginning of my paper to the formerly enslaved women in Toni Morrison's novel Beloved, which is why I wanted to add it in at the beginning. Because those were people, although they were written about in the fictional sense, that did reflect a true story of women who had to struggle with far less resources to accomplish what, within the context of the novel and even in real life, seemed impossible at times. And so my overall suggestion to those interested in honoring Black feminist legal theory is to, of course, engage in the works of popular Black legal feminists like Kimberly Crenshaw, Cheryl Harris, Dorothy Roberts, Angela Harris, Nicole Alexander Floyd. There are so many. I was so engrossed when I was um, just doing the reading for my paper. I really, really enjoyed it. But lastly, I did want to say that also really spend a lot of time with Black feminists from outside of academia who offer their firsthand analysis of how the legal system disregards and mistreats them. Because again, this is by no means an easy task. And um, although it is difficult, I do believe that true commitment does require some level of humility and sacrifice in order to gain the progress that I know so many people are committed to um, one day achieving. So that was sort of an overview. And thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Trust. Uh, next, we'll hear from Haley Hahn um, talking about uh, her paper, Termites in the Master's House. Haley. Thank you very much. And thank you too to the Virginia Law Review and the Center for the Study of Race and Law. I am honored and excited to be here today. Um, so my essay, and, and this is great, thank you, Trust, for your thoughts. Um, speaking of Black feminists from outside the legal academy, I will be discussing the life and contributions of radical Black feminist Florence Slow Kennedy. My paper focuses on Kennedy's abortion access advocacy. Today, I'd like to present a brief overview of Kennedy's life and then close with three key takeaways from Kennedy's abortion access advocacy that are especially salient for contemporary reproductive justice advocates. First, 
Who is Kennedy? Born in Kansas City, Missouri on February 11th, 1916, Kennedy would go on to become an important intersectional attorney and advocate. Kennedy believed that only through, quote, unifying in struggle, unquote, could marginalized people achieve liberation. As an undergraduate student at Columbia University, Kennedy penned an essay for a sociology course in which he demonstrated a keen awareness of intersectional theory. She wrote, quote, the similarities of the societal positions of women and Negroes are fundamental rather than superficial. And this awareness led Kennedy to pursue a career in a wide range of advocacy positions on behalf of a variety of groups. Indeed, the modern African-American political thought reader observes that during her lifetime, Kennedy advocated for, quote, the rights of African-Americans, women, sex workers, and members of the LGBT community. Following her graduation from Columbia University, Kennedy went to Columbia Law School, where she was one of the first Black women to earn a law degree. This enabled her to represent a range of clients and causes, including the estates of Billie Holiday and Charlie Parker, Black radicals such as Ashata Shakur, and to take on powerful institutions such as the Catholic Church, which Kennedy challenged on the basis that their anti-abortion advocacy violated the provisions of their tax-exempt status. Later in life, Kennedy transitioned her advocacy uh, to focusing primarily on public speaking. She often traveled with Gloria Steinem, working to advance uh, NOW's interests. Um, and during these speeches, Kennedy would captivate crowds with her characteristic humor and fiery rhetoric. This rhetoric also led to some detractors. People Magazine dubbed Kennedy, quote, the biggest, loudest, and indisputably, excuse me, the rudest mouth on the battleground, end quote, for radical feminist policies. Um, I'll omit much of that language today while speaking, but if you'd like to see some of it, please check out my essay. Um, importantly, Kennedy never punched down. She was always concerned with using humor um, and language to fight for the oppressed, to fight for the most marginalized. And one area where this impulse really shines through was in her abortion access advocacy. So in in my essay, I used Professor Patricia Hill Collins' dual dimensional framework for Black women's activism to analyze Kennedy's approach. Um, but today I just want to focus on three key takeaways. First, a bit of background. Um, in 1969, Kennedy joined with attorney Diane Shoulder to challenge New York's restrictions on abortion. During the trial, Kennedy made sure to foreground the experiences of the women who had sought abortions. This was a departure from the approach up to that point, which had often focused on the experiences of the overwhelmingly male physicians. And this is also an approach that serves today for um, campaigns that seek to highlight uh, women's voices and other folks' uh, voices who have sought abortions, such as the Shout Your Abortion movement. Uh, Fortunately for um, those seeking reproductive justice in New York, um, the legislature repealed the challenge statute in 1970, mooting the case. But Kennedy and Shoulder remained concerned, so they decided to pen a book, Abortion Wrap, which laid out the case for the Supreme Court to declare restrictions on abortion unconstitutional. 
Um, in so doing, uh, Kennedy and Solder made sure to do three things, which I think are especially important for reproductive justice advocates today, um, especially given the unprecedented number of abortion restrictions passed in recent years by states, um, as well as restrictions on the federal level. Um, so first, um, Kennedy and Shoulder made sure to foreground the experiences of Black women. They did this in a few ways. Um, first, um, the first Black Congresswoman, Shirley Chisholm, wrote a foreword for the book, and Kennedy and Shoulder made sure to highlight Black women's experiences. Um, now, Kennedy and Shoulder also observed in keeping with intersectionality's focus on multiple marginalized identities, that Black women disproportionately face risks of censure or violence for coming out about abortion access. So to protect them, they presented these uh, testimonials in the aggregate so no one woman was at risk for backlash. Kennedy and Shoulder also recognized that reproductive freedom for Black women did not merely encompass abortion access or contraceptives, um, rather, Black women also face other barriers to exercising reproductive freedom, such as sterilization, um, forced sterilization, um, which was a prescient critique uh, given later cases such as Ralph Fern versus Weinberger, which would challenge federal policy of forced st sterilization. Um, so for contemporary reproductive justice advocates, keeping with this policy, it's important to make sure to foreground the experiences of Black women, not merely white women, which has led to the conventional reproductive rights movement moving um, to focusing almost exclusively on abortion and contraception when there are a range of issues. The second key takeaway from Kennedy's approach was the focus on intersectionality, um, not just incorporating analyses of race, but also class. Kennedy and Shoulder wanted to make sure that economic impediments to abortion access were removed. So if contemporary reproductive justice advocates were able to adopt the same framework, we might see economic barriers such as the Hyde Amendment removed. Um, this would ensure uh, that the right to an abortion would remain not just a right in name only, but uh, a practical reality too. Finally, Kennedy and Shoulder made sure to foreground women's voices. As I mentioned earlier, uh, Kennedy's approach during the trial um, was a departure from the focus on overwhelmingly uh, male actors in prior actions. Today, um, journalist Dahlia Lithwick has written about the court's recent tendency to focus not on the experiences of women or those seeking abortions, but on other male actors. Um, this Lithwick has observed has led women to hope that, quote, men will make really good choices on their behalf. Um, but Kennedy recognized the power of having people testify based on their lived experiences. Um, she and Shoulder noticed um, the power of that testimony. And so they made sure to include um, anonymized, but uh, still uh, testimony from women who had had trouble accessing abortions in their book. Um, this is important for contemporary reproductive justice advocates too, um, as we make sure to foreground folks with multiple marginalized identities, um, we should focus on the power of narrative as a persuasive technique, um, not just for courts, but also for legislatures. 
Um, so in conclusion, um, there is much to learn from Kennedy's life and legacy. I, I talk about this a bit more in the essay, but as, as Trust alluded to, there is a tendency um, for society to render Black women's contributions invisible. Um, and part of that in Kennedy's case was due to the trope of the angry Black woman. As I mentioned earlier, Kennedy's rhetoric was fiery, but she used this fiery rhetoric to fight not perpetuate injustice. She was concerned with the most vulnerable in society um, and she used the tools at her disposal to highlight these disparities. Rather than disregard her contributions due to this racist and sexist trope then, I contend that it is time to foreground her contributions, to heed her words and example, and to use this to build momentum, to build power and to foreground um, the experiences of the most vulnerable to ensure um, not just reproductive rights, but reproductive justice. Um, I think this is an approach that will further, again, not just rights, but hopefully um, contribute to what Trust observed as the liberatory potential for Black women's feminism. So um, I will conclude there, but thank you all so much again, and I look forward to the rest of the discussion. Thank you, Haley. Uh, and finally, uh, Professor Julie Sook, who's going to be presenting a dangerous imbalance. So I just want to thank Professor Kim Ford Mizrui and the University of Virginia Law School for convening this really important conversation. And just listening to what we've heard so far, I was really moved in hearing Professor Monopoly reflect uh, on her experience uh, of having a course in women in the law here. Uh, and I was just so impressed listening to your students, Trust and Haley, and the amazing research they're doing that's now going to be published uh, in the University of Virginia Law Review Online. And I hope to cite their work in my future work, uh, because I think there is a story right here on this panel um, about women being empowered in institutions. And that's what I want to talk about with regard to uh, a certain vision of the Equal Rights Amendment as it's playing out in real time today. Uh, and the history of its making uh, that helps us get to this understanding of the Equal Rights Amendment as having a certain relationship to the idea of empowerment uh, within institutions. So as many of you know, uh, Virginia became the 38th state uh, to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment uh, about a year ago. Uh, and uh, it's an, it produced an unprecedented situation in constitutional history because uh, the Equal Rights Amendment was adopted by two thirds of Congress as required by Article 5 uh, almost 50 years ago. And 35 states, uh, three short of the 38 necessary, ratified it almost 50 years ago. Uh, and then uh, the three states that make up the three fourths uh, that you need under Article 5 to make a constitutional amendment uh, didn't come through with their ratifications uh, until uh, the last three years, culminating in Virginia's ratification just a year ago. Uh, and then since then, uh, there's this, been this question because there was a seven year deadline on ratification uh, and the three states came in decades after that seven year uh, deadline. Uh, and so Congress has tried to take action to remove that deadline. Uh, in fact, they extended it once in the 1970s. Uh, the House voted last year to remove the deadline, but the Senate didn't follow. Then the ratifying, the late ratifying states brought a lawsuit saying that the deadline could be ignored. Uh, so there's intense political and legal contestation uh, about whether or not the ERA can be validly added to the Constitution today or at some future date. And this raises huge questions uh, that, is, uh, that should be of great interest to constitutional lawyers and scholars. Uh, like, for example, can you make an amendment like this 
the constitutional text doesn't say anything uh, about deadlines. Uh, and so can we uh, have them? Can we remove them? Uh, and then who decides whether the deadline is enforced and whether we can add the ERA now? Does Congress get to just decide that by removing it? Do the courts get to decide by deciding whatever they'll decide in this litigation? Does the president have a role to play? Uh, and, uh, and so forth. And so these are huge questions. Uh, and assuming that you can make an amendment this way, uh, although I think there is some skepticism within the constitutional law scholarly community as to whether you can legitimately make an amendment this way. If you can make it, there's this other deeper question in constitutional theory as to what on earth is this amendment going to mean? Because it was adopted at time one, 1972. Uh, it was ratified through the 1970s. Uh, and then there's an updated meaning. I mean, it has, the amendment has words like equality of rights shall not be denied or abridged on account of sex, right? Uh, on account of sex, those are words that have evolved from 1972 to, nine, uh, to, to 2020. Uh, equality of rights also evolved, evolved in part because of changes in law with regard to the 14th amendment uh, throughout the 1970s due to the pioneering work of Polly Murray uh, as the intellectual architect and uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg as the primary implementer through advocacy uh, of a theory of equal protection uh, that reached some success with uh, the United States versus Virginia uh, decided 25 years ago uh, in 1996. Uh, so uh, one proposition, uh, and I think this is a, a, a subject for uh, intense uh, scholarly and lawyerly debate in the future, uh, is that there's got to be a transgenerational synthesis of meaning between the time of adoption, 1972, and the time of completed ratification uh, in 2020. Uh, and it's within that uh, proposition in constitutional law uh, that I want to bring in the story uh, and the through line of Black women's uh, advocacy for the Equal Rights Amendment from the 1970s uh, to the three late state ratifications in 2020, uh, because I think there is a through line in the vision uh, that's carried forward, uh, and it helps us make uh, understand what the public meaning of the ERA is at moment one and moment two uh, through this idea of a transgenerational synthesis, a synthesis that um, critiques but also builds on what was achieved through 14th Amendment litigation uh, and the achievements of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, so with that in mind, um, I just want to point out, and I think it is an important part of the story that should not be ignored as people form their views as to whether we should legitimize the ERA today. Uh, it is a fact that black women were the leaders in the state legislatures uh, that ratified late, Nevada, Illinois, and Virginia. And particularly in Virginia, uh, we, we had black women in the legislature who were patrons in both houses. Jennifer Carroll Foy, who incidentally in the House of Delegates was one of the first black women to go to VMI after United States versus Virginia integrated uh, VMI. Uh, so then she ends up in the House of Delegates and is the primary sponsor of BRA ratification. Jennifer McClellan, a black woman in the Senate and Mamie Locke, um, a black woman in the Senate. And the whole story when Virginia ratifies is that they're making history. They're trying to correct women's uh, disempowerment and lack of representation uh, in the Virginia legislature and in Virginia history, uh, indeed, uh, by ratifying the ERA. And that story is also very importantly related. And these two women, by the way, were women who were pu very public about being pregnant while running for office and pregnant while in office. 
Uh, so they're bringing a lot of attentions to issues of motherhood and connecting the drive for the ERA, not to this history, not only to the history, but also to the need for public policy to support working mothers. And in the same legislative session, they are both co-sponsors of the Pregnant Worker Fairness Act in Virginia uh, and um, doing a lot of other public policy around repealing um, restrictions on abortion that are not uh, based in scientific evidence. Uh, that story with Virginia has important parallels to the Nevada story. Nevada, of course, instigates the 21st century uh, revival by being the first of these three states in 2017 uh, to ratify the ERA. Uh, that was, I mean, there was a coalition of women of many races and generations uh, involved in that fight, but it was led very um, importantly uh, by Senator Pat Spearman, uh, who is an African-American woman an, an ordained minister, a member of the LGBT community and a mother. Uh, and she brought all of those identities to the table when she said it's really time to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment because equality protects everyone. Uh, and, uh, and I think that message was extremely important in the Nevada ratification. The Illinois ratification is among the most interesting because there you have black women who are strongly in support of the ERA, uh, like now Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton uh, and Latessa Wallace. Uh, who are in uh, the House of Representatives in Illinois, but also it gets, it's a really close vote. In Illinois, you need 60% of the legislature to ratify an amendment. And it's really close because there are two black women who voted against the ERA ratification, uh, Mary Flowers uh, and Rita Mayfield. Uh, and they voted against it. And these are women who have also sponsored Pregnant Worker Fairness Acts uh, in Illinois uh, and done a lot of work uh, on reproductive rights and reproductive justice. Uh, so they said the Equal Rights Amendment was brought to us by Alice Paul, who is a proud racist. Do we really want to align with that history? So there was a real debate on the Illinois floor uh, about the white legacy uh, of advocacy for suffrage in the ERA uh, and what that would mean for protecting uh, and helping uh, working mothers, working class mothers and black women uh, who never enjoyed some of the protections, uh, the labor protections, for example, that um, white women enjoyed uh, when there were early fights about labor protections in the ERA. And what I want to point out is that these debates, I mean, ultimately, Juliana Stratton and Tessa Wallace were able to convince the legislature that indeed uh, the ERA could uh, form the basis for stronger protections against violence against women and could uh, and would uh, lead to better public policies uh, that were intersectional uh, in their consciousness. I, I think these debates are really important because you can see a very strong through line between both the critiques and the responses uh, from Polly Murray's work and specifically Polly Murray's testimony in 1970 before uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, I would say that that Judiciary Committee testimony on behalf supporting the ERA uh, was a very important pivot point uh, because Polly Murray began from a standpoint of some skepticism about the Equal Rights Amendment throughout the 1960s and the work that Professor Myrie talked about. Uh, initially, the strategy was to try to do gender equality through the 14th Amendment because the fear was that the Equal Rights Amendment would be too rigid and would strike against all sex classifications in the law. Uh, and indeed, uh, Polly Murray, when she testifies in favor of the ERA, says what the ERA is really interested in is not equal rights, but equal power. Uh, we're really interested in imbalances of power, dangerous imbalances of power, which lead to abuses of power. Uh, and so she talked about the fact that there were so few women in Congress at the time. Uh, and uh, she was hopeful that the ERA would work politically 
not just doctrinally, but politically uh, to draw attention to women's disempowerment and then to move public policy in the direction of empowerment. And that might sometimes mean public policies that recognized uh, sex discrimination as a problem and made sex classifications to overcome that. So um, where does that leave us today? Uh, so it does show us uh, that even though there were certain goals of the ERA and certainly striking at some sex classifications was important to the project in the 1970s. Uh, and that's the project that actually succeeds uh, through the 1970s through equal protection jurisprudence. By the time you get to United States versus Virginia, you have uh, heightened scrutiny for sex classifications. Although I think Justice Ginsburg wrote the opinion carefully uh, to avoid a situation where it would mean strict scrutiny of the sort that was given to uh, race cases against affirmative action. Um, there is a space left both in United States versus Virginia, as well as in Polly Murray's early advocacy uh, for taking measures uh, to really empower women, um, even if it means uh, that you might sometimes use sex classifications in the law. Uh, and then you see uh, African-American women taking up that legacy uh, and then doing a lot of policy making in the same legislative sessions that they do ERA ratification uh, on problems like unequal pay that persist and the unfair treatment of pregnant workers. Uh, and I'm, in the interest of time, I'm not going to say much more than that, uh, but I think there are serious doctrinal implications to the transgenerationally synthesized ERA uh, with important work done by African-American women. Uh, I think there are important doctrinal considerations as to how, what it could add to the Equal Protection Clause jurisprudence that we now have. Specifically, uh, you're seeing empowerment initiatives in California, i.e. a statute that requires at least one woman on every corporate board of directors uh, and a new statute just passed uh, in October that requires at least one member of an underrepresented group, uh, whether it's African-Americans and certain racial groups or a member of the LGBT community. These laws are under uh, threat. Uh, Pacific Legal Foundation and Judicial Watch are suing uh, the state, uh, saying that these are violations of the Equal Protection Clause, claiming that you can't have sex classifications uh, of this sort under the Equal Protection Clause. And I think knowing what we know about the transgenerational synthesis of the ERA, I think the ERA could create a space by which we could think differently uh, about uh, state or federal initiatives to empower women, uh, like uh, a corporate board representation rule. Uh, I think we could think about them differently from the way we might analyze them under equal protection uh, as um, inherently problematic and requiring compelling justification. So I will end there uh, and I look forward to questions. Thanks so much to you, Julie. Thanks so much to our amazing group of panelists. And thank you for being so timely because we now have plenty of time for questions. A, a reminder that if you would like to ask a question, please pose it in the Q&A box at the bottom of your Zoom screen. So I'm just gonna go in the order of the questions that we have received. And the first one is from KJ and it's to Professor Mayori. And it's, uh, here's the question. You seem to have had more to say about sexual harassment. How was intersectionality historically relevant to that issue? Thanks so much for the question. Um, so I think it was, it was relevant in a few different ways. Um, one way I think it was important was the degree to which 
um, black women who suffered from sexual harassment at work were able to see that harassment as problematic and as something that contributed to their inequality and subordination in part because they were um, they had observed and experienced discrimination based on race and sometimes class and other categories as well as sex throughout their lives and were able to see sexual harassment, which at the time was often characterized as, you know, just sort of a personal problem, something that naturally happens when men and women work together. I think their experiences helped them to see it as something that was not only problematic, but addressable under anti-discrimination laws. Um, I think it also helped judges see that to some degree, um, that judges who could by that point some of them at least, more easily see the problematic nature of race-based harassment, I think we're able to, um, and and I think this is true across a variety of areas of anti-discrimination law, when um, discrimination claims were framed as um, both race and sex discrimination claims, you know, as Professor Crenshaw um, observed, sometimes that was a huge impediment but I think there were also instances where it was an advantage because judges, uh, particularly actually judges in the South who had dealt with um, discrimination and, uh, and desegregation cases uh, and the intransigence of, um, of many white Southerners in those contexts um, were sometimes more sympathetic to sex discrimination claims that originated in a context that um, featured also uh, racial inequality and subordination. So those are just a couple of ways I think intersectional um, experience and discrimination played a role in, in the sexual harassment context. Let me see, do any of the other panel, but before we move on to more questions, any of the other panelists like to respond to that? Oh, um, if I can just uh, add in uh, a, a little point about the Illinois ratification of the ERA, it was actually very concerned with sexual harassment issues, uh, particularly because uh, the Women's Caucus that was formed that made ERA its first priority was formed partly because there were complaints growing out of the Me Too movement about women's experiences uh, in the state legislature as aides or employees of various le black male legislators. Uh, so, and, um, so I think that's uh, just something I want to add in uh, on uh, the relevance of sexual harassment to the set of concerns uh, that we're looking at. Okay, I, let me move on to the next question. And this is for everyone. It's from Jahan McAuliffe. How would you recommend law schools incorporate the lessons you are discussing into the general law school curriculum more completely? And maybe, maybe we should start with the law students. <laughs> um, I mean, I can say very generally that as a student, it's very clear what the contours of legal studies look like just by like what's on a syllabus. And I so, so I feel like that's usually the first and easiest way for a law school to incorporate these lessons like into your syllabus have different and diverse voices and also not just different voices, but people of 
differing backgrounds. I think that's also really important to me. I've noticed in academia, a lot of time, there is a reliance on other academics. And whereas I feel like that makes a lot of sense just in light of you know, the history of certain groups, access to academia has been limited in really important ways. And so I'm also a big advocate of incorporating non-academic sources and treating them with the same sort of respect and intentionality as those that come from different, even academic, not legal, but research backgrounds. That's important to me. Yes, um, I echo trust concerns. And I, I think one way to discuss this is which forms of expertise we credit. Um, so one common criticism or, or just concern I, I've had myself as a student in like political theory classes is these theories seem pretty divorced from the practical realities we see. Um, how do we implement this as attorneys? Um, but what I appreciated about Kennedy's legacy is that her approach was both theoretically rigorous, but also practically effective. Um, and when we talk about theorists, I think there's a tendency to attribute brilliance, um, sometimes unnecessarily overwhelmingly to white men, but it's important to recognize that there is a brilliance in tackling issues systemically um, and in ways that actually have a positive material impact on people's lives, which I would argue uh, Kennedy's life and work demonstrates. Um, and merely because uh, activists are able to put these concepts into accessible language, that doesn't mean that it's not also intellectually rigorous. So um, in selecting courses, I would say that's really important to keep in mind. Would either of the professors like to respond or my co-moderator? Sure. Go ahead. So yeah, I mean, I. I I think it's really important. I think there are two different institutional spaces where it's important. Uh, one is, I mean, when, when we teach courses about women and the law or gender and the law, uh, I taught a course called Mothers in Law, um, you tend to get people who are already interested in thinking this way. Uh, but I think it's so important to bring these perspectives into the required courses that we teach. Uh, and I really tried to do that when I taught civil procedure last semester uh, to bring in, like really think about the fact that the, the cases we're talking about, whether they say so or not, impact real people uh, and have intersectional effects. And I really encourage students to think about that in the classes where um, it's not self-selection, everyone needs to think about it. Uh, and then there are these spaces where we'll get more in depth into people who are already uh, thinking this way. Uh, I thought it was actually great that, um, I mean, I taught a hybrid class this semester. And so I had some students in the room and others on Zoom, but I was able to bring in attorneys uh, who have worked uh, on some uh, related issues and brought a certain perspective about the th material that we're, we were studying because I was able to bring them in over Zoom. Uh, and so I totally hear what the students are saying about trying to connect to the real world um, at certain moments. Uh, and I think um, for, for all the things that were bad about the pandemic, this was one silver lining that we were able to do that. I, I don't have much to add to these in incredibly um, insightful uh, comments. Um, I would just say the other piece um, that I think is can sometimes be helpful is oftentimes law school, and I think this is changing uh, to a large degree today, but focusing on court cases can also be somewhat limiting in terms of thinking about who we credit as experts and also who we credit as legal advocates. So looking at other forms of advocacy, administrative, legislative, petitioning, um, and, uh, and, and social movement activism can also be a way of bringing 
bringing those voices in and also addressing this question of um, practicality and, and strategy. Great, and I would just add, um, I actually teach a seminar in uh, gender in the legal profession, um, which is providing a, a good vehicle to talk about um, women as advocates. Uh, they're sort of their battles to become lawyers, why it's important that they were lawyers, their sort of role in constitution, defining constitutional equality. And, and that is a, a great way to sort of talk about uh, how to bring intersectionality and theory um, we talked about Pauli Murray last night. And so uh, it, there are spaces, I think, um, both, I think it's important, as Julie says, to bring it into the, the main classroom because people are there who wouldn't otherwise be exposed. Um, and it's also important to think uh, about developing new courses where you can talk about that. And I will ask the next question, which is directed at Haley from KJ, how did Kennedy in practice approach working between movements? Um, so I think there are two ways of talking about this. First, and I won't go into it too much because our last question addressed this, but uh, Kennedy um, through adopting intersectionality handled topics by viewing them systemically. So she talks in her work about the ringer of this system, which I think is just a more um, a conversational way of putting her um, approach to what has been termed in the literature uh, hegemonic oppression, um, which we would approach um, looking from trust angle, for example, um, from the perspective of trying to further liberation. But I also think Kennedy's approach demonstrates um, both her courage and her humility. Um, and I think that those two traits are sometimes thought of as contradictory, but actually in her case were complementary. Um, so she was fearless in the face of oppression. She was um, happy to go work um, wherever she was needed um, and she went where she was called. So for example, um, in 1973, women's students at Harvard University were protesting the lack of women's restrooms on the campus. So they invited Kennedy to speak um, and she went there um, and helped to galvanize folks. Now the um, precise practical impacts of that action are difficult to ascertain, but um, it was written up in the Harvard Crimson and professors Elizabeth Sepper and Deborah Dinner have a great article um, that came out in the last couple of years that documents this instance as one example of um, the, the space that bathrooms have held in anti-discrimination debates. So um, I would say that those are the most important ways Kennedy's life demonstrates her ability to work between movements. Great, thank you. Uh, this one is for trust. Um, in, in your piece from, uh, this is from KJ again, if in your piece you touch on how an intersectional approach in Bostock would have pushed the court to recognize that protections um, that LGBTQ individuals need aren't just job safety, but other kinds of protections like healthcare, housing, food security, and other necessities. Um, so the questioner is asking you, you know, if, if you were to be able to have time to be more specific about it, what would an intersectional approach to Bostic look like doctrinally? I mean, I think that a quick specific answer would be probably the most implicit, but also difficult within the legal structure we have now, because I think it would boil down to um, constitutional law. And obviously there's a lot that people can say about what the construction of um, particular rights are and liberties should be for American citizens. But I think that 
my commentary sort of points in that direction, that there are a lot of ways in which we look to the law to deal with the specific issues without understanding that the foundational perception of rights as something that can be denied um, in certain areas, like in food security and housing, like those are things that are more so variable, but then there are other rights if you, you know, go into the long history of the development of rights through the constitution where we kind of see them as more permanent or inalienable. And so in that way, I think that's sort of where I'm pointing to, but obviously the constitution is the foundation of most all of you know American law, so it's really hard to have a commentary in a short paper. But I think, generally speaking, that's where I was pointing. Thank you, Naomi. Here, here's a question. Um, and again, let me thank everybody for all of your questions. Here's a question for everyone that kind of goes to to some of the common themes. Seems that there's a lot of emphasis on how allies can help. What is missing from the conversation of allyship to help us make more progress? And what is something that marginalized people, particularly black people can do to remain uplifted, energized in fighting for equality, given the trauma of the freedom struggle? I know I just said something, but I, I wanna respond to that really quickly. I think that even in my piece, like when I was reading the different black feminist legal theorists to write the paper, I felt very uplifted in that, just reading what other black people have said and how we are sort of like joined together in this struggle that you're not alone in it. Because oftentimes I feel like when you start feeling burned out, it's because you're taking on more responsibility that is due. Think, you know, specifically with black women, there's this expectation that like we're superhuman we are not and so like I'm very intentional with myself and other black women within my community to be like take a break step back and understand that these systems have existed long before you came around and that you obviously can have big impact but I am a very very strong advocate of collective struggle because there's absolutely no way that one person can take on the burden of you know fighting against hundreds of years of anything so I think you know, to the black people who are participants, like definitely feel encouraged, know that there's a lot going on, but there's also a lot of us and that if we band together that we can do most anything. So that's my response. Any other panelists want to respond? It's great to hear how you were inspired by, by doing a project that could be quite depressing. Um, okay, let me, um, let me then ask uh, another question. And uh, uh, this is for, for, for Julie Sook from, from Arjun. Professor Kim Ford Mizrui argues that the ERA might have unintended consequences in the form of anti-classification type judicial construction. How can we prevent that from happening in a judiciary as conservative as it is right now? After all, the provision will need to be construed by courts. And let me say this is for, for Professor Sook, but, but it's going to be the last question. So other on, this, on the panel, please think about it as well. Great. Thanks for, so much for that question. I think a lot of the amendments that we had, including the 14th Amendment, had, I don't know if you'd call them intended or unintended consequences, but we do know that uh, the, we had Plessy versus Ferguson after the 14th Amendment. Uh, so certainly it's possible to get an ERA 
uh, without interpretations that we would identify as particularly feminist or in line with the proponents that I've cited in my paper today. So this, I take this very seriously. I think there are two really important answers. One is emphasize the legislative history where it's so clear that a lot of the women, including the women of color, Shirley Chisholm and Patsy Mink, who advocated for the ERA in Congress in 1971, uh, said that this, really, this amendment was not really going to be about the Supreme Court. It was going to empower Congress and it was going to empower state legislatures and it was going to empower them by the two year effective date uh, because the state legislatures would be the first movers on repealing the laws that were inconsistent with equality of rights. Uh, and so, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote some articles also in the 70s, talking about how the ERA was going to cause Congress and state legislatures to systematically and pervasively uh, repeal laws that were inconsistent, but also importantly, rewrite laws uh, to make them consistent with equal rights. And that article by Ginsburg saying that about empowering legislatures uh, gets cited by Pat Spearman as she does the Nevada ratification in 2017. So I think one important thing about this amendment, it's a different kind of amendment. Uh, it's not made in the 19th century. Uh, it's an amendment that's very conscious of congressional constitutionalism as opposed to court constitutionalism. Uh, and consistent with that, to the extent that you, if anyone thinks that Congress does have the power to remove the deadline, last week there were two bipartisan resolutions that have been introduced in the House and the Senate. I think it's vitally important that there be hearings in the House Judiciary and Senate Judiciary Committees uh, that really create a robust record uh, about what the amendment means, why they're removing the time limit if they're voting to do that, uh, because I think that's a way in which you can create an anti-subordination versus an, as opposed to an anti-classification uh, reading of the ERA, uh, if particularly the reason for removing the time limit is congressional dissatisfaction uh, with, court, with the conservative court's jurisprudence uh, on the Equal Protection Clause, especially on matters like affirmative action. So I think that legislate, the process matters. Um, I think that the way that the amendment is made uh, will determine its meaning. Uh, so, and I think that legislative history, both in the 70s and now uh, is the answer. Unfortunately, we, we are out of time. Thank you for that response. Uh, and I wanna thank this amazing group of panelists for your discussion of, as my amazing co-moderator said in introducing the panel, for your discussion of multiple marginalizations and for bringing to the surface some of the hidden histories that help shape the issues underlying this entire conference. I should note that in conceptualizing this conference, I know it was important to include a range of voices from throughout the academy and including students and wow, yeah, I think it's worked better than we could have even intended. Um, thanks to you, the audience, for attending and for asking thoughtful questions. And I'm sorry that we couldn't get to all of them. Thank you also to the Center for the Study of Race and Law and the Virginia Law Review and to all of the co-sponsors. We will reconvene at noon for panel two, the struggle today. So I hope to see you all there soon. Thank you so much.